This is the John Oakley Show podcast. This is kind of an interesting story. You know, when we uh, caught wind of the China cables, uh, this is an investigation spearheaded by uh, a Washington-based international consortium of investigative journalists, uh, some of whom, you know, uh, are from Canada as well. Uh, They obtained from a confidential source in China uh, some rather nefarious practices by the communist government, to wit, uh, the Uyghur minority, about a million folks in the northwestern part of that country, are living in a de facto prison camp. Uh, But more to the point, some who have documents to travel abroad and are citizens of other countries as well are being monitored. So the reports go, and they're considered to be rather credible. Uh, Here to tell us exactly what this is all about and why we should be concerned, Ian Lee is with us on the line, associate professor at the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Professor Lee, good to have you on the Oakley Show. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, John. So what do you make of this? The China cables have now verified what a lot of people have known or suspected for a while, but uh, it really is sinister stuff, isn't it? It is. Um, I, I have a different take, and I don't at all mean to disagree with you at all. But my take is, I mean, many, many people in the American you know, military establishment and conservative think tanks, and likewise in Canada, the, the constant refrain over the last several years is China is this enormous threat, and in the sense that they're going to surpass the United States and become the world superpower. When I see these stories, and I believe them, by the way, I don't challenge the veracity, the accuracy of these stories, what it signals to me is how desperate China is. And I'm not suggesting it's on the final days of collapse like the Soviet Union, but I would suggest that it's at the very early days. This is so, it smells and sounds and feels like, say, the mid-70s with the Soviet Union, when it was, its growth had declined at one point way back when it was in the 50s. It was growing faster than the, than the United States annual GDP. And people were writing articles saying, oh, we're doomed. They're going to overtake the U.S. and, and so forth. And then it, it, it hit max, and then it started uh, the Soviet Union, and then it started to decline. And, and I'm one of those people that uh, I am deeply convinced, John, that a centralized economy and a centralized political system, which is the nice neutral phrase for a communist-type system, is destined to fail because it cannot resolve the problems that exist in large societies, whether it's the problems of allocate, you know, production, how many running shoes should you make? And we laugh and say, what a silly argument. Well, there was, the Soviet Union was rife with stories about, you know, they'd have, they'd produce way too many t-shirts and not enough running shoes or gloves or whatever, because central planning is a failure. Central planning fails everywhere. And the equivalent on the political side democracy elections, federal, provincial, municipal, et cetera, et cetera. That's a decentralized system of decision-making. I'm not trying to sound academic here. And what I'm trying to say is there's no brain big enough, there's no computer big enough in the entire world to anticipate and plan all the problems that confront any country. So what do authoritarian regimes like China do? They say, well, we can't control it all. We can't anticipate it all. So we're going to use brute military raw police force 
to try to control it. Well, we've seen in country after country after country, it ultimately fails. Look at Venezuela. Look at Zimbabwe. I mean, we can go on and on. Now, will it take longer for China? Oh, yes. It's a much bigger country. It's going to take longer to fail. But when I see these stories, how this is a country of 1.4 billion people, and they're freaked out over 1 million really poor people on the far edge of China who are Muslim minorities. And, and I'm thinking, my goodness me, 1.4 billion people, the second largest GDP in the world, and look at what you are doing to 1 million poor, uneducated uh, you know, people who are not a threat to China, and yet the leadership sees them as this, you know, a, a cataclysmic uh, threat to China, and that just shows the paranoia as well of these authoritarian regimes. And I've taught in many countries, including China. I've taught in the former Soviet Union. I've taught in Russia. I've taught in Ukraine, and I'm telling you, I've seen these countries, and my, I've always marveled that they were able to last as long as they did before they collapsed. But they're doomed. I re- and I'm g- giving you Pollyanna. What I'm giving you is an efficiency argument. They cannot continue. They can't produce effectively, efficiently. And, and they can't handle dissent. And they can't handle, handle angry people who are getting disenfranchised. Hong Kong is exhibit A for what I'm talking about. Well, I was just going to ask you, I mean, with the Uyghurs, that's a different situation. But Hong Kong is spectacularly uh, successful. So why are you saying they want to tamp down on that because they yeah. can't brook any dissent yeah. or anything that doesn't toe to the totalitarian regime's line? That's exactly what I'm saying. You know, Hong Kong, I actually use it in my class, because it, not, not because of this debate about China, but because it's one of the richest places on the planet Earth. And, I, and, and by the way, the number one investor in China for the last 25 years, people don't realize this, the number one investor of capital in China has been Hong Kong. So these people, the leadership of China, are so freaked out, they're willing to cut off their nose to spite their face. They're willing to kill Hong Kong, or at least they're exhibiting a willingness to destroy the golden goose, this gigantic golden goose called Hong Kong. Hong Kong is fabulously wealthy. I've taught there quite a few times. The wealth there is extraordinary. And these foolish communist bureaucrats in the top of China are willing to kill the, the, the very thing that made modern China in the last 20 years possible, meaning the tremendous growth because of the capital investment in China by, number one, Hong Kong. Number two, by the way, is Taiwan. Those are the two largest investors, and they're the two uh, regions, countries, whatever you want to call them, that the Chinese leadership see as, see as a threat. And that's why I believe China is uh, when I, it destined ultimately to fail. When I say fail, of course the country will not disappear and the people don't vanish. What I mean is that regime will ultimately fail because it cannot handle these, administer effectively these problems. And the Uyghurs is Exhibit A, Hong Kong is Exhibit B. Again, with Ian Lee, Associate Prof at the Sprott School of Business up at Carleton University, just talking about this uh, China Cables report from investigative journalists who colluded on this and found that, you know, they're keeping tabs on this minority, uh, Muslim minority in the northwest part of the country. So, 
Professor Lee is saying this is just suggestive of a paranoid regime that can't control the people, though they want to tamp them down. Hong Kong's another situation. But, you know, uh, let me just ask you then, Xi Jinping, who's a leader now, and I remember going to a monk debate, uh, I guess it was about six uh, months ago. Uh, I think it was uh, Michael Pillsbury, if I've got his name right, with the Hoover Institution. But he's, yeah. you know, he's talked up that uh, this guy has designs on empire, this one belt, one road. They're extending yeah. themselves, buying up Africa uh, and a lot of smaller countries leaving them in hawk, and therefore, you know, they have to really uh, basically uh, revert to the Chinese control. Uh, you're saying they're overextending themselves? This uh, dream yes. of empire is going to collapse on itself, too? I, I am, I, John, I'm glad you picked that up. I, I mean that because I was speaking some of the things I was saying was between the lines. Um, I believe that China is engaged in serious overreach. I, I track every morsel of data that comes out of there. I mean, one-third of all their corporations are state-owned. Now, I'm not, you know, being religious about state-owned enterprise, although I clearly think that they're, they're failures in Canada and everywhere else. Uh, but they, they have the, the lion's share of this massive Chinese debt. China's debt has exploded in China, and it's overwhelmingly in the state-owned enterprises. Why? Because they're subject to state-owned control and orders from the top. They don't make the decision on rational economic grounds. We're going to build this factory because we're going to make money uh, building whatever we build in the factory, you know, cars. We build the factory because... The Politburo told us to build it. The Communist Party told us to build it. For political, the, the same, same process went on in the Soviet Union for 70 years. Yes, it took 70 years to collapse. But my point is that any system like that that has to coerce and beat up people and use the a military to beat up people to achieve assent is not going to succeed ultimately. I mean, there's eight, I believe it's eight and a half million people in Hong Kong. I mean, Pierre Trudeau, and I've never been a fan of Mr. Trudeau's economic policies, but I thought one thing he said, I'm talking the father, the late father, said many years ago, he said, look, even the most authoritarian society cannot control everybody using force because they don't have enough people in the army to hire one person for every citizen that is if every one of the citizens revolt. And he said they rely on the fact that most people are passive in an authoritarian regime and they don't need one cop or uh, army guy to control every citizen. But what happens when the whole population rises up, as is happening in Hong Kong, and you've got resistance from the entire population, or the Uyghurs, or one million people? It requires more and more resources, and you've got to spend more and more time and more and more people, and this is a dead weight loss to society, because these resources are not being built, used to build factories, to build cars, and, and all the other things that societies build. Well, let me ask you just very quickly. Quickly then, uh, but don't you see where tens of millions of people who have been taken out of poverty, abject poverty, might have a certain fealty or loyalty to the regime that's done they that? Do. They do, and I've talked to, I have, I've been on the ground, and I've talked to, I've had some very frank conversations with some remarkable young 20s, 30s uh, Chinese professionals, and they said, look, we understand that our government isn't very nice, and that they abuse human rights. We won't say it publicly, but they said, you know, the deal is, you know, they, they give us a higher standard of living and, and more and more jobs and better paid jobs, and, and we, you know, we're, we're happy with that. That's the, the bargain. The problem is, is that revolt always starts in these regimes, in my opinion, from some minority group. And it doesn't have to be a religious minority group. It can just be somebody who's not part of the mainstream. 
and uh, Hong Kong in this instance, believe me, there's a very great resentment between the people of China and the people of Hong Kong. Uh, they're not uh, simpatico. <laughs> you know, it's sort of like the East Germans and the West Germans. You know, they're Germans, but my goodness me, they're still 30 years later and a lot of rancor between West Germany, the old West Germany and the old East Germany. And, and so my point is they can't, in the short run, of course they can do it. The Soviet Union did it for 71 years. But, you know, you've got to spend more and more and more on unproductive resources, keeping all the dissidents in line. And, and what I'm saying is it ultimately collapses. I'm going to say something, John, that really may sort of shock you and may shock some of your listeners. I've actually argued that communism is a really good uh, system. When you're, uh, I'm going to be really blunt, mm-hmm. a really backward country. Mm-hmm. When you're, de- you know, when China, 1947, 99% illiteracy, mm-hmm. massive levels of poverty, because you don't sit around debating human rights and, and democracy theories when you don't have enough to eat. And so it works very good in a low-tech, highly uneducated, poor, rural society like Russia in 1917. Yeah, it's transitional. Like, it's transitional. Yeah. Let me ask you finally it's then. Fail, it's a failure in a modern, uh, highly educated digital economy. It's the exact opposite of what you need, so, and that's why it's going to fail. Professor, what Ronald Reagan did to the Soviet Union, you talked yeah. about a 70-year timeline and uh, yeah. had it collapse on its own. Do you think there's anything similar that Donald Trump is trying to do by applying the screws to China? Um, I, I do. I think it's partly, yes, I do. I don't want to beat around the bush here. Yes, I do. But uh, I, I think it's partly out of self-interest. They do believe. I mean, I've, I travel to the States a lot. I mean, a lot. And I just hear this refrain over and over and over. And you hear it from both Republicans and Democrats. This is one thing they do agree on. China is cheating. And they have been. They've cheated on intellectual property. They steal the, the, the commercial secrets of American corporations. They suppress the interest rate for a long time to give their companies an unfair competitive advantage. They suppress wages, which is easy to do in an authoritarian regime, again, to give their firms a com- an unfair competitive advantage. And so, Ray, uh, excuse me, uh, Trump, President Trump, what he's now doing is, I, I do believe, he is saying, okay, enough is enough. We're not going to allow you to continue to cheat. And they're calling their bluff. And but China's ascendancy has been built, yes, on Hong Kong capital and and capital from Taiwan, no question. But it's also been built on a willingness of the Americans to open up the largest economy in the world to China. And now he's calling it and saying, you're not going to continue cheating. And I think that Xi's, uh, President Xi's um, crackdown on the Uyghurs and crackdown, and it's not justified at all, but I'm saying I think it's partly his paranoia because he knows the full picture of inside China. And there's a lot of rot inside China. There's a lot of really bad furniture. You know, there's a lot of cancer. (laughs) I'm using metaphors here, but there's a lot of problems. You know, people look at the states, which is so transparent. I mean, they show all their problems, and they're on the national news and all the time, and everyone says, oh, my God, the country's falling apart. No, that's the genius of the United States. That is the genius, is that they let it all hang out, and then they confront it. The Chinese and other authoritarian regimes, they try and suppress it. They try and suppress through the Internet. They suppress the Internet. They suppress public opinion. They suppress demonstrations because they're trying to keep a lid on all of the problems that they are not addressing. Right. And that's and I'm not saying China's going to fall apart tomorrow morning. Mm-hmm. I am saying they do not have a model 
that is sustainable that will allow them to overtake and surpass the United States of America. All right. So the die is cast. Interesting. Very, very fascinating discussion. Uh, Professor Lee, we'll talk down the road and we'll see how it goes. Thank okay. you. <laughs> Thanks, John. All right. Ian Lee, Associate Prof at the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.